The talk is about flowers of suffering and flowers of joy. Where's Kuan Yin? Or metta compassion and mindfulness. Uh, jelly or jam is a very ordinary substance that's very helpful for us um, in our life. I think especially in the old days on this continent. So I wanted to read you a quote about jam by Thornton Burgess. He said, it's a wonderful thing to sweeten the world which is in a jar and needs preserving. I think of that as the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. It's a wonderful thing to sweeten the world which is in a jar and needs preserving. Unconditional love, unconditional care, metta holds us up. The Brahma-viharas are the jar. They're the container for us, for this unconditional love and care. It can be the ground for developing more and more understanding and freedom in our lives. So to think of the Brahma-viharas as this jar, you know, that which is inside is the wisdom or the understanding. If we ask ourselves what's really important in this world, one thing we could answer is that the work of beautifying our heart could be one of the most important things in this world. We can't force the development of a beautiful heart. It requires gentleness. Caring about the pain in this world requires understanding. Understanding purifies the care, just as understanding purifies the love and loving-kindness. As we do these practices, we hit the barriers to the unconditional love and care. And at those times, we do the mindfulness practice, which brings the unconditional acceptance of how things are. That brings in the equanimity and the wisdom. So we have these two kinds of practices, or two kinds of mirrors, to understand who we are. Love and wisdom. Love and understanding. Love will tell us that we're not separate. When we experience love, we'll feel that impartiality or union with all beings. We'll feel interconnected. We'll feel reassured. It's very healing, this union with all of life. The healing is because we understand through that experience of interconnectedness that it's not true that we're separate. The Brahma-viharas are all getting to that sense of understanding that we're not separate through breaking the barriers. Understanding or wisdom helps us to see that there's nothing substantial or solid 
anywhere in this universe, that there's nothing to hold on to. Hopefully, the love that we come to touch into in the Brahma-vihara practice um, helps us to relax or ease into the understanding that there's nothing to hold on to. Often, we're, we hear about that there's nothing to hold on to, and we get this kind of sense that maybe emptiness is horrible, you know, or that the void is um, hollow, or there's, there's something unpleasant about it. Um, but it's not. It's a very deep understanding that if you look closely at experience itself, that it's just very insubstantial. So a beautiful heart is really developing and valuing equally these two spiritual understandings, love and wisdom. And as we learn to value both, we get more and more committed to both. Through the mindfulness of our moment-to-moment experience, we come to understand that life is a stream of change. When we hold on to pleasure with attachment, or whenever we push away unpleasantness or pain with aversion, anger or fear, what that is is really a search for security. That search for security in this world of change is a defense. It's a protection uh, that we develop because we don't have enough wisdom to see things clearly, to uh, accept change. And that reactive mind, um, as we start paying attention, we see how painful it is because it's not based on the truth of how life is. Mindfulness practice leads to a maturing of, or a ripening of freedom within the human world of change. Uh, And the freedom is really that the awareness is no longer tied into the world of pain and and pleasure. It's no longer imprisoned by experience, human experience. The human predicament in this world of change is really what is being free, what is safety, what is peace. Uh, and it's, a, it's really important to know why it's so hard to find peace in this world of consistent change. What seems true of life is that it goes on and on and on. And it's so easy to get lost in this world of conditioned reality. And what is lost? What is being lost in this world of change? We can repress or deny that change is happening, rather than experience what's happening. We can get lost in indulging in our thoughts about what's happening. We get lost in fantasy and imagination and thinking about what's happening or analyzing what's happening rather than experiencing change. On retreat, we get to have more time. You know, 
we're so much more protected from having to do so much that we don't get to pay attention uh, to what is peace. You know, what is the taste of peace? And what is the taste of trust? Initially in practice, we start to look more deeply than the conditioned world of experience for happiness or peace. So whether we're having at times experiences of unconditional love or care about pain or unconditional acceptance, um, we also see as we practice that there are many times when we see conditional love, we see conditional care, um, we see the reactive mind. Try to keep in mind that this isn't um, always so black and white, but there's a, there's a kind of watercolor um, aspect to these practices. Um, if we're really honest, we'll see that maybe at times we might have 10% unconditional love and 90% neediness when we're wishing someone well. Or maybe we're doing a compassion and we feel maybe 50% grief and, and then maybe the 50% of care will start to emerge. And those, those boundaries, um, moment to moment, can change. How much of the time when we're mindful are we really non-judgmental? But again, try to see that in, in a series of moments or a series of minutes that maybe it's not so solidly lost or conditional or peaceful, that it has that um, quality of moving in and out of these states. Not being aware of the reactive mind is madness. Sometimes we might be so deeply immersed in the loving-kindness or compassion practice that we'll forget what mindfulness is. And we might need to switch to mindfulness. Um, But when we shift to it, we're not sure exactly what we're doing because it's so different. it's helpful to remember at those times that we're just being in the present moment. And that often that is very ordinary. So that if we shift to the breath, it's really very refined. And it's just noticing that we share air element to exist, to be alive. It's not ours. We're sharing it or borrowing air element moment by moment. Very, very ordinary, but we're often very out of touch with the preciousness of it. Or maybe we hear the sound of a bird. Or maybe we smell strawberries or taste strawberries. Or maybe we touch the grass with our foot or see a blue, see a a, um, butterfly. Or maybe we have a thought, you know, I really like the last sitting better than this sitting. (laughs) This is very ordinary. We're just noticing thinking happening.
at times when we're doing these practices, whether it's metta, karuna, vipassana, we can start to notice that there's less struggle or less intensity at times, especially at this point in the retreat. Um, And we can make an interpretation about our practice at this point, at times, that nothing is happening. Uh, And it's important to investigate that maybe we're needing intensity to feel like something's happening. We want some feeling that there's a purification happening. We have to see that we're wanting to do something for liberation to happen. And this is very subtle here, but so important. Maybe the ordinariness of the phrases um, becomes neutral for us. Or maybe we experience just calmness. Calmness can sometimes feel very neutral. And maybe we're attached to more intensity or struggle. Uh, So we have to look at how we identify with the neutrality at times in the practice or the um, boredom. We often call them nothing's happening times. Uh, And if we notice our relationship to neutrality, actually liberation can happen in the ordinariness of our experience. In fact, liberation happens with the ordinariness of our experience. What is our reaction to subtlety? Nothing's happening. We often feel like we have to do something with the experience that we think nothing's happening. Or we think we have to do something that the phrases (laughs) are just more neutral. Or we have to do something if we think that it's boring. Instead of just letting the boredom live, just letting it be, or bringing compassion, caring about it if the reaction to the boredom or nothing's happening is painful. We don't have to make our experience better. We don't have to get rid of boredom. If we want to get liberated with this, we can look at the, there's a subtle identification with a doer there, a fixer, of experience, instead of letting however the practice is going to just be, to let it unfold. Often doubt will arise if we don't do that kind of investigation, and the thoughts that might appear will be, I'm not doing this right, or nothing's happening in my practice, or fear might arise. Often we'll think, well, life is so short and so precious, and I'm not making use of my time here. And if you hear these kind of thought patterns, you can hear that they're more and more an interpretation about a separate self, about me, I, and mine. And it's only because we're not seeing that we're identifying with neutral landscapes, or calm landscapes, or not intense landscapes. When we see this clearly, we can understand that we're really identified with experience. 
And this is true whether it's loving-kindness or compassion or mindfulness practice. Um, How much are we judging our experience? Or how much are we really able to accept it no matter what? In the practice, we have to kind of surrender over and over to the truth that what our experience is isn't really important. And this is revolutionary for us. The deeper kind of happiness or peace comes when we're not identified with the experience, no matter what practice we're doing. So when we can accept and not identify with the feeling of subtlety or nothing's happening, uh, acceptance can arise and we'll feel protected, safe, and free. There's nothing like this because that's so much of what's happening in our experience. Uh, And we get so caught in thinking (laughs) we have to change it rather than that we can get free through it by not being tied into experience itself. We're not a, a victim of feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. So there's no need to get anything And there's no need to get rid of anything. There's no need to get rid of any experience. Whatever is happening is what we're using to develop love and wisdom. If we see that we're wanting more to be happening, we might want more concentration, we might want more energy, we might want more of the feeling of metta or compassion. It's just wanting. And if we see that clearly, we can have compassion for it. It's painful. And we can shift the practice to just caring about the wanting mind itself. We don't have to get rid of the wanting mind at that point to be free. I found in the metta practice that that would be often when I shifted the phrases to may I be happy just as I am, or may I be peaceful with whatever's happening, or no matter what's happening. It brought that practice of love and wisdom together, acceptance of change, acceptance of ordinariness. If we get to a place in practice where we feel totally contracted (laughs) and nothing seems to work, I think sometimes it's good to surrender and just have a cup of tea. (laughs) This is written by a woman, anonymous, in 1859. I might not pronounce some of these words right, she's describing how you do laundry. Build fire in backyard to heat kettle of rainwater. Set tubs so smoke won't blow in eyes if wind is pert. Shave one whole cake of lye soap in boiling water. Sort things, make three piles, one pile white, one pile colored, one pile work breeches and rags. Stir flour in cold water to smooth, then thin down with boiling water for starch. 
rub dirty spots on board, scrub hard, then bile. Rub colored, but don't pile, just wrench and starch. I obviously don't know this very well. Uh, take, take white things out of kettle with broomstick handle, then wrench, blow, and starch. Blue, wrench, blue, and starch. Pour wrench water in flower bed. Scrub porch with hot, soapy water. Turn tubs upside down. Go put on a clean dress. Smooth hair with side combs. Brew a cup of tea. Sit and rest and rock a spell and count blessings. <coughs> kind of like a day of metta. <laughs> Sometimes it's good just to rock a spell, look out the window or just go outside, drink a cup of tea and count blessings. Kuan Yin <coughs> is the bodhisattva of compassion, and it's said that she can hear all the cries in this universe, all the cries of sorrow and pain, and responds to them with care. Uh, but she also hears all the laughter. She hears all the joy. She's a good listener. Once here at IMS, at a three-month retreat, um, there was a yogi that had a little statue of Kuan Yin, and he would bring it to the dining room for all his meals. And during a three-month retreat, I'm not sure if it's happening here, but people tend to start sitting in the same places over and over. So there gets to be a kind of family feeling, very deep family feeling um, at the while we're eating. Uh, so for maybe, it might have been two months, uh, he would bring his little Kuan Yin statue to the table when he was eating. But of course it wasn't just his at that point. Everybody around him got really connected to this Kuan Yin. So you can imagine two months of silence and sitting together being with this Kuan Yin. Uh, and so from my side, I, I understood as his teacher because something really um, at some interaction happened for him at the retreat, and this incredible rage and anger came up, very deep, old, kind of primitive anger and rage came up, uh, and it lasted for days. You know, it was just inc incredible, <laughs> um, powerful time, uh, very in it. You wouldn't say he was seeing it clearly, <laughs> those first few days. Um, and he completely forgot to bring the Kuan Yin to, to the breakfast and then to lunch. So you can imagine, he's not noticing, right? He's just caught in all this anger and rage. But the people around him started noticing. Uh, and by the third day, I think it might have been at lunchtime, it might have been tea, there was a little teeny note um, at his place when he sat down, and he opened it up, and there were two words and a question mark. Where's Kuan Yin? I think we need to remember that a lot in our practice. 
Whenever you're having a difficult time and you're lost, where's Kuan Yin? You know, and it became such a metaphor for him, but it was such a teaching. I mean, it was just such an incredible teaching. You know, it just woke him up. He had completely forgot. He was doing metta, by the way. (laughs) He was doing metta practice for two months, and he just completely lost the ability to even remember it was possible. Uh, And just that little question, you know, the next meal he brought her back. And it was helpful, you know, that reminder that we can bring compassion to that intensity of anger. If we connect more at times with loving-kindness or compassion, what will happen is that the conditional love will become more visible. The conditional care, the grief, the cruelty will become more visible. And when it becomes more visible, that's just when we forget about compassion. You know, the aversion to the pain becomes so predominant It's not even that the pain is predominant anymore, it's the aversion to the pain that becomes so predominant. Um, And if a little compassion starts to come in, it still might not be unconditional. Like, I'll care about my anger if it goes away. You know, how many times have you been with something here And you think, well, this will be okay if it goes away by tomorrow. You know, or I could probably stand this for two days. But, you know, that's how about deep karmic knots that we've been dealing with our whole life. And we think, you know, it should really go away. These deep, either chronic pains or chronic psychological patterns. Um, Is it really compassion? if there is that condition on it. Or as someone said this morning, I'll care about your pain if you get it together. If it's not too overwhelming for me, if your pain doesn't last too long. You know, we need to find compassion for ourselves or others when we hit that place of not being able to accept it just as it is. We have our own limitations, and that's the time when we need compassion more than ever. My sister, last May, right around this time, um, started to have real trouble with ovarian cancer and had an operation and started massive doses of chemotherapy and is still <laughs> taking them. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. Um, and around the three-month retreat at the end, she had a CAT scan. And we were all hoping that the chemo had um, at least arrested the development of the cancer and the spreading of it. So she had a CAT scan, and I think we all you know, we were, there was so much hope um, that it would have at least arrested the spread, um, but it turned out that it had spread uh, pretty dramatically. And that night, um, it was a night that the snow had fallen, and the, of course it's December, so the leaves are off the trees. 
Uh, but then the full moon came out, and I was so angry. <laughs> and I was just so full of grief. I would just go back and forth between grief, anger, grief, anger. And I couldn't even stay in the house I was in. I just had to get outside. It was late at night. And I was watching myself just say no over and over again. This isn't acceptable. Uh, but eventually I started being willing. That willingness, that proximate cause of compassion is the willingness to feel the pain. Um, and of course then there was so much grief. And I was walking and walking. Uh, and the moonlight was so beautiful on the trees and the snow. But I didn't want to really let in the beauty. And it was so beautiful. Uh, but I could feel how I just wanted to stay. Um, I felt that attachment to the grief. It was very clear. And yet the moonlight was like this steady, refined rain of peace. It was one of these very powerful moments in my life. And it was like the peace of the moonlight was pouring and pouring into me. I just couldn't resist it anymore. and I had to let the grief go. And I really didn't want to. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to let this go. Uh, but the power of the peace and the love I felt was so strong, I finally did let it go. Each moment of our life is different. It's unique. And each person is really unique, ourselves and others. And this is why mortality is so hard. It's been a funny karma for me to have a very dear um, student, friend in Hawaii, uh, have pancreatic cancer, very similar timing, same age as myself, and my sister's only nine months older than me. and she, I went to see her a week before she died, just before I came here. And she's done a lot of practice. And she was in so much pain, the morphine couldn't even touch it. I mean, she was just in pain like I've never seen before. Um, and when I walked in, little tears came down and she said, why is this so hard? She has two small children. And then she said, all of my practice has been intellectual up to this point. You know, it was like the body falling apart really drove that first noble truth of suffering home for her. And she got very lost at times. You know, and she was saying she was so lost, and she was crying and crying. Uh, And I just said, you know, (laughs) pancreatic cancer is hard. You know, it's like your children are small, and but that's not it. It's like you're unique. You're a new unique being, and I don't want you to go. You don't want to go. And that's just what's happening. It's it's okay. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda uh, that I think somewhat touches into that sense that being lost is okay and that sadness is okay. It's it's called 
to sadness. Sadness, I need your black wing for a moment, for a short lifetime. Take the light from me and let me feel myself lost and miserable, trembling among the threads of twilight, receiving into my soul the trembling hands of the rain. Tears can be so sacred, we forget that. So being lost over and over at times in our life when we're really up against these great, incredible challenges, whether it's for ourselves or someone else or any being, all beings, all of us here that have to face birth and death and the joy and sorrow in this world, we need to be able to flow with life as it's happening even when we're lost that that's totally okay, too. We don't have to get rid of that when it's happening. And this requires a lot of compassion, incredible mindfulness or acceptance. We see that we develop a relationship of mindfulness, metta-compassion, to anything that comes downstream in our life and that that's possible with practice. And I think the most important part is that part of really allowing ourselves to get lost with, with the compassion. One of the things we do when we don't allow ourselves to get lost and be able to see it clearly is we practice fake acceptance or fake equanimity. And fake acceptance is pretending that we're protected by equanimity or compassion. It's pretending our heart is connected. We're pretending to be okay. But really, (coughs) we're in denial or passivity or naivete or indifference. So we might have the thought, you know, I don't care if my body feels like it's been in a vice grip the last three sittings. I don't care if it feels like there's a meat hook under my heart chakra. (laughs) I don't care if nothing's been happening in my practice for the last ten years. We're really pretending that there's satisfaction instead of facing the dissatisfaction or the being lost. Real protection happens that when we can accept the aversion or the fear or the attachment. You'll know the times when you're feeling like you're not lost. We're usually planning our next retreat. And you'll know the times when you're lost because you're counting the days till the end or the minutes 
And it's important to be in touch with our deep intention to be liberated, no matter what's happening at those times when we're lost. Both the times of being clear and both the times of being lost are equally important, but we often don't value the purification that's happening in the times that we're being lost. How much of our experience is really acceptable to us? And that's really a measure of our spiritual practice. You know, slowly over time you'll find that whatever you've been resisting will get worn away by the metta, compassion and mindfulness. And then more and more of life experience will start to be more experienceable, not gotten rid of, but experienceable. You know, so a fear of rejection is a karmic knot. What happens is that we slowly get a little more strength to experience that fear. And so the relationship to whatever's difficult for us will be a relationship of learning to get out of the way and letting things come and go by themselves so that we're not thinking that metta is what's supposed to be happening, but anger and lust or whatever, neediness, are okay too. You know, is the experience of clarity the only thing that we accept, or is the experience of dullness all right as well? If we're seeing clearly, if we're protected, we can open to change, and both, or the dichotomy of experience is acceptable. When my, when Stephen Smith, my husband, decided that he couldn't get to Burma (laughs) because he didn't get his visa, Um, I knew I would go to Burma, uh, but I was afraid. Uh, And when I went to South Africa in 1986, uh, when apartheid was so strong, and I went to teach meditation there, And the amount of fear that was in the country affected me so deeply that I was constipated for six weeks. (laughs) My system just contracted. It was just so painful. And so I was thinking about going to Burma uh, with such a horrendous government. I mean, just so much torture going on in that country. Um, And that's sort of like my edge, one of my edges. Uh, But in the years since I went to South Africa, I've worked a lot with fear in my practice, you know, terror and fear a lot. And so I knew I couldn't go to Burma if I didn't feel like I could be really with those experiences of fear or terror. And actually, the last um, self-retreat I did, um, I felt that I could go, you know, that I had worked through some of the deep old karmic knots around fear of torture. Um, 
So toward the middle of my time there, uh, there's a girl named Chesu, she's maybe 16 now, who had inspired Steve to start uh, the Metadana Project, which is helping the hospital and um, school in that village and, and certain um, people that he knows there. There's just extre- extreme poverty. Uh, and she's so grateful because he's helped her and her family so much that um, she wanted to see me and his mom. Steve's mom went, she's 87, and our daughter Chandra went. Um, but his mom broke her foot in Burma, and so we weren't really going out to visit the villagers very much. And so uh, she finally got up the courage to come visit us. Uh, so then she started after his mom left and Chandra left, uh, she started to visit me once in a while with her friends, and we would go walking along the river, very ordinary, you know, just a bunch of girls having a good time along the river, talking and chatting. Um, And one night, they wanted me to come to their house, but that always meant a long um, time being with them, and I didn't have the time. So I said, well, let's just stop at this pagoda. There's lots of pagodas around on the way back to the monastery. This is all through hardly any, I mean, my little two phrases of Burmese, of course. Uh, So it was getting dark. We went to the pagoda, uh, and there they always have their arms around me, or holding, they're very very touching and holding me. Um, So we were walking toward the gate, and this military man came, and their bodies just went into rigor mortis. I mean, it was just complete, total terror. Um, And their faces looked neutral, but I could feel their bodies just go into a total state of terror, and they dropped their hands from me because they're not supposed to be with foreigners. Uh, And I could feel that part of me, the very deep conditioning to contract with terror, too. Uh, But I had worked with it and worked with it so much in my practice, and I really saw a change. You know, I just felt myself go, no, I don't have to do that. And I just kind of, with my energy, kind of engaged him with my horrendous Burmese, but I can be very funny with it. And I had him in such laughter, uh, and I asked, you know, I, I pointed to the monastery and asked him to walk me to the monastery, and the girls kind of slipped away. Uh, but it was so interesting for me knowing that I didn't want to bring that reaction to fear into that country, like I had in South Africa. So we can see change over time, even with deep karmic knots. But a lot of the change with my relationship to fear came through compassion, not trying to get rid of it. And it's not like that terror didn't arise. It was just that I related it, related to it with compassion and mindfulness so that it became workable.
Pablo Neruda, one of the great poets, said that hate is a loser. And I think of expanding that to fear is a loser, hate is a loser, attachment or greed is a loser. What does it mean when we say, may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm? When we truly, deeply accept impermanence, when we can accept change, we're protected, we can trust. And protection comes when there's a balance of mindfulness and then the heart-connected equanimity present. So if we see clearly what's happening, we're okay with whatever's happening. And we see that the experience isn't personal, it doesn't belong to anyone. So safety means that if wanting something arises, that we're safe and protected enough to experience the wanting mindfully. We just let the wanting come and go, just as it is. And if fear or anger arises, safety means that we're safe and protected enough to experience the fear. So there's no need to do anything with these experiences, but to be mindful of them, and they come and go by themselves, or to be compassionate, or have metta. Things come and go just as they are. Things are as they are. So the less we're able to accept change, the more we're afraid of change, the less we trust. And if you see the course of your own day here, where there's probably sleepiness, then some metta, restlessness, (laughs) boredom, no peace, fear, Whatever it is, just see that within this Brahma-vihara practice uh, that you can learn to go through all these changes with a sense of protection, with the loving-kindness, compassion, and then shifting to the mindfulness when those aren't working. And when we get lost, no matter how old we are, or no matter how long we've been practicing. Our relationship to getting lost has to be allowing that too to happen and then starting again and beginning again. That relationship with being lost, beginning again, lost, beginning again, uh, starts to get easier and easier and easier. It's part of how life is. So we get out of the way and let our practice reveal itself, but also let our life reveal itself. And when life stops becoming indescribable or intangible or mysterious, it stops being true. This is a mysterious, indescribable, intangible process. And sometimes when you're lost, Remember, where's Kuan Yin?
I'd like to end with a flowers poem. And my friend in Hawaii, uh, she created her own memorial service. Uh, And it really uh, was like her. It had this incredible range of sorrow and joy. Uh, So she started with having Aiken Roshi and I, her teachers, say something. And then her husband and her two children got up and her husband read this poem about flowers that was her favorite poem with her uh, 13 and 10 year old there with him. And then there was a jazz sax player that played and then a hula and then African drumming. And it went from this place of such, you know, poignant sorrow and mourning um, to this gradual transforming that energy into this incredible joy. It was really powerful. You know, there is this vast range of joy and sorrow in this world, and it can be a wild roller coaster ride to hold it all with a deep um, mindfulness, care, balance. But we can practice, we can practice that. The world is a flower, gods are flowers. Enlightened ones are flowers. All phenomena are flowers. Red flowers, white flowers, green flowers, yellow flowers, black flowers, all the different kinds of the colors of flowers, all the different kinds of loves shining forth. Life unfolds from life and returns to life. Such an immense universe. Oh, many lives, flowers of gratitude, flowers of sorrow, flowers of suffering, flowers of joy, laughter's flowers, anger's flowers, heaven's flowers, hell's flowers, each connected to the others and each making the others grow. When our real mind's eye opens this world of flowers, All beings shine. Music echoes through mountains and oceans. One's world becomes the world of millions. The individual becomes the human race. All the lives become the individual. Billions of mirrors all reflecting each other. There is death and there is life. There is no death and no life. There is changing life. There is unchanging life. Flowers change color moment by moment. Such a vivid world, such a bright you. You were born out of these flowers. You gave birth to these flowers. You have no beginning and no ending. You are bottomless and limitless, even as you are infinitesimal dust. You are the flower. You are love. All beings shine out of their uniqueness. All melt into the oneness of colors. You are one. You are many. Only one moment. Only one unique place. 
only the unique you. Beside you there is nothing. You dance appearing in all. From nowhere you came to nowhere you go, you stay nowhere. You are nowhere attached. You occupy everything. You occupy nothing. You are the becoming of indescribable change. You are love. You are the flower. Let's sit for a minute. Flowers of suffering, flowers of joy. May we remember Kuan Yin. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.